en 200 metros, gira a la derecha y corre con Chetumare que viene en los pacos. Hello, welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. It's me again doing the introduction because Jamie can't be bothered. Hello. <laughs> Just kidding. He's being a little bit shy today. How are you doing, Jamie? No, I'm not. I'm not being shy. You're, you're right. The first time I can't be bothered. That's the, <laughs> that's the that's the more impressive one, I think. Is it? Oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I have a a little tip before we start for everyone out there listening. Uh, naps are not your friends. Uh, we. You saw that yesterday, Jamie, when Say we were no about to, to record. Yeah, I, I still feel a little bit groggy from mine yesterday. I, I don't know why we do it, but uh, just thought I'd give you all a heads up. Don't nap. Naps are unnatural. <laughs> unnatural. Just go to sleep early. Yeah. I, I can't say shit about that, but but yeah, try at least. Um, but enough about sleep. Let's talk about land rights and why respecting people's right to live on their land and to use their land is maybe a teeny bitty itty, teeny bitty itty, teeny bit more important than preserving it at the cost of their independence this is a topic that we've gone into a little bit with george uh Jordikescu and with uh, alexander dunlap and those were some of my favorite episodes so i'm super excited today to bring in uh, Thomas Worsdale, an independent researcher working with the Asia Indigenous Peoples Pact and the Rights and Resources Initiative. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I, watched, I watched the episode with George. It was really great. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Thanks. It means a lot to us to, to hear that people actually like bother to, to listen through a whole episode <laughs> or part of it. Um, I, I'm like I said, I'm super psyched because I feel like those two episodes were somewhere I'd learned the most, to be honest. Mm. Um, they're topics that we don't talk enough about. Oh, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, land rights is getting much bigger, though. I'm, I'm glad to hear that the momentum is picking up, that this it's something that's been the struggle, no, for over a century more. So, you know, 400, 500 years, everything's been on the basis of land, you know, from since England, Middle Ages as well. Uh, all of capitalism, extractive industries, all of this is a struggle for land resources and more. And, and, and only now it seems like there's this big pickup and uptake on actually making policy inclusive and, and recognizing the rights of people. So, so hopefully this issue is becoming more and more mainstream, which mm. seems crazy to say. But yeah. Although I, I do have to say that I'm still not seeing um, land rights kind of being mentioned in like let's say eu policy papers or in uh, you know uk government like stuff or in the us even i feel like it's still kind of limited these days to ngos or research groups uh, but yeah hopefully it kind of makes its way into the mainstream politics um do you do you think that you could maybe tell us a little bit about the groups that you work with uh what they do and kind of what your role is with them yeah, so the Rights and Resources Initiative is a coalition of over 150 uh, collaborators and partners. Uh, these are groups of indigenous peoples, uh, local communities, and Afro-descendants across the three regions that we work in, which is predominantly South Latin America, uh, Africa, and also South and Southeast Asia. So across these three groups, um, indigenous peoples have had their rights or have been struggling for the recognition of their rights and an alternative form of rights that we have as the western construct of what human rights and rights are uh for for a very long time and it started in the early 20th century at least uh trying to gain access into the united nations and only around the 80s or so did people actually start opening that space and that space opened up actually with alliances with environmental organizations, NGOs, um, that well, while they gained access to the UN when uh, Global South countries also gained more power in those spaces, they began, began to like leverage rights for the environment, rights for humans, rights for people, and, and bring in that discourse. So a lot of the different communities that I work with, with the organizations, many of them are on multiple scales. So you have local scales, 
national scales, regional scales, and even then the global scales, you know, each one fighting for the same thing, but in different contexts. So national uh, uh, organizations at the local and national scale often trying to reform uh, land policy uh, or even more practically create discourses around uh, their traditional practices um, and also even map community lands because maps are also something of power that excludes. So this counter mapping movement is being created at the local levels to start you know, bridging and creating that data for, for any kind of uh, future advocacy and current advocacy. Uh, regional organizations are often uh, bridging together all of those those instances or those happenings that are taking place at national uh, contexts and local contexts, and also then negotiating through uh, a lot of communication with the ground at, at the intergovernmental and regional um, platforms, trying to bring forward research that has taken place, collate data, uh, negotiate within a uh, conference of the party. So in the COP or in the CBD or things for the, like, for example, like the Paris Agreement, and even the UN and all those other branches of the United Nations to try and to try and break that decision-making space uh, to include people who have been uh, marginalized or even minoritized in their national and regional contexts. Uh, so it stems from everything, from recognition of different ways of being, different ways of relating to the world, different frameworks of rights. What do they even uh, mean? Um, identity politics, livelihoods, practice, uh, food security, all of those different things are always the basis of land rights. And also those are the topics which all of these organizations uh, work in. Of course, uh, gender as well being a huge one, people, persons with disability as well, elderly, all of those, each organization that we work with would have a particular specialization uh, if they are at the national regional and they become more broad at the, at the regional and global level. So there are many new proposals around um, conservation of uh, to, to protect particular um, high-value um, biodiverse areas, and um, as as you talk about, this is an issue because this may restrict access of, of resources to the indigenous people living there. Do you do you think that there is a recurring necessary conflict between conservation of these um, high value areas and the use of resources of uh, the local people living there. Do you, do you think there has to be a kind of conflict of interests there? No, no, absolutely the opposite. In fact, I think making it broader than just indigenous peoples, local communities as well, uh, and including in those Afro-descendants. There's a growing body of literature that supports uh, their managing or their ability to manage their commons. And I think this to a certain degree is a bit farcical because traditional knowledge is a form of science in its own right. It, it's, it's a trial and error process passed down over generations. So the fact that in the international platform, it needs to somehow be legitimized by some form of rigorous scientific practice. It is a bit of a, is a bit farcical. Uh, but saying this, it does, it is a useful tool to, to augment their abilities or add to traditional knowledge, any form of scientific data that can back this up. And we're seeing, and this is even from back with Eleanor Ostrom, this whole tragedy of the commons kind of idea that people are poor and uneducated and don't know how to manage simple things within community is, is, a, is a misconception that still dictates and governs most of global policy to a degree. Uh, you know, academics and policymakers or the predominantly run by the global north are like, we need to tell people how to do things. You know? mm -hmm. And that's the particular flaw. So the interests of conservationists and, and, and communities, indigenous peoples and local communities around the world are completely in, in, intertwined, if anything. The issue is when it comes to decision-making and power, but this doesn't necessarily have to be the issue. Um, conservation actors have, uh, you know, have the capability and are beginning to work more closely with, with local communities and indigenous peoples. So, so for that 
to achieve these things. And we're seeing that there's when those alliances are actually streamlined in an inclusive and equitable manner, uh, issues like illegal wildlife traf trafficking are tapered. These, a lot of the social economic problems that are created because of conservation zones that exclude people from their commons, from their forests, from their savannas, from their areas, are detrimental to conservation as a, in, a, in a whole. So including these people, all of them, in, in the act of continuing to conserve their lands, because that's what's already happening, can, if anything, or is the only actually way that conservation will succeed uh, alongside, of course, the need to change consumerism and consumer habits, of course, as well, these, these other threats mm. that go side by side. But often, often the unity of conservation and extractives is also something that takes place that, that, that land and biodiversity are seen as a commodity. And as, as a result of them being seen as a commodity, there's an issue of power and control. And that's, that's where anyone living in that space becomes a threat to the ability to control that kind of land. And, and then as a result, gain a monetary value from it. So, so this, this side, so we can, we can see obvious problems with um, monetizing biodiversity and kind of like in, in simple terms, rare resources and animals. Um, and it's, it's obviously bad if it's, it's kind of done in a neo-colonial aspect, you know, it's being things being taken out, being exploited. Um, but what if that colonial aspect isn't there? What if, for example, and, and we were talking to um, Sicily about this, uh, something similar about this with bird trade yesterday. What if um, the exploitation of these um, rare resource, resources is a, is a cultural thing for the indigenous people and they're kind of at least initially unwilling to relinquish that practice? Um, how How can you sort of, because that to me seems like a, a necessary conflict of interests. And if you were to say that, well, this, these, for, for instance, this species of lion is very important, it's near extinction, we, like, so we need to, you, you need to stop doing this. That, it, that is, you know, a form of, you know, like the global north acting in, um, again, paternalistic ways. I, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on yeah, I understand. I understand this question. And it's difficult because it, we're now speaking on a global context and mm. we have to, at least when we're speaking about indigenous peoples and local communities, it's, it's a multitude of local contexts, each one different. And we can always pick one community or one group of people who cherish or value a particular, uh, you know, animal or type of food or, or, but is that really the thing that's actually threatening that species? And the answer is usually no, uh, that it's, it's land use change, habitat loss, all of these, uh, you know, the, the wildlife tra trade, um, mining, the destruction of the habitats, which are even more of, a, of an issue. And, and a lot of other research that shows that these endangered species are often revered in many uh, communities, actually, actually, actually revered these animals that are most endangered and would not hunt them and hunt the more common ones, which are usually also the ones that are easier to, 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 to catch. And, and, and those kinds of, uh, you know, the perception that everybody is, you know, human wildlife conflict is an other issue, which I, I'm not particularly versed in, and it does exist, but that also is usually as a result of, of the dwindling, you know, ecosystem of those species and the fact that we're clumping everybody into concentrated spaces, no? So I, I would not say that it's, it's, it's not beneficial or even detrimental. Well, how do I word this? It's reducing or limiting use, and this is in my opinion, I'm so many people maybe get angry, is not the thing that we should be prioritizing at all. Indigenous peoples and local communities, if they traditionally hunt and harvest, should be allowed to do so because it's the global north who are the ones in, in this context are the ones who who are consuming products like in the uk this whole thing that just came out with soy in the amazon and in argentina yeah. you know how dare you tell people that they can't hunt a particular species when your consumer habits are the ones that are destroying areas in the in the forest that are mm -hmm. the size you know of, 
you know, of London and, and multiple ca counties around. So, so yeah, I think that's a non-issue and we should be more concerned with those other threats that are very real. And so, and so in your research, you, you haven't come across this uh, kind of um, uh, local, unique, uh, excessive consumption of rare resources in, in the sense I described. Well, it, it depends how you define that. Uh, yeah. So I've come across a lot of uh, work uh, in particular in Cameroon by John Fa, and they, they analyzed and they found that hunting endangered species was actually, those are the least hunted of all of the communities that were there of the Baca in this particular context. And I come across more research that discusses local communities and others who, uh, who, who become poachers as a result of a socioeconomic strain on them and their communities often as a result of some form of eviction from their lands and natural resources and their space. And that, that eviction is the separation of their entire culture and their entire way of life. And, and, and it's, it's that not lack of understanding that land, that we're not separated to land and that land holds that history of those people and every, their resources uh, and they've, they've managed it uh, through generations that we evict them to the periphery of what becomes a lucrative business and in a form of rebellion almost, they, and, and, and desperation for the need to, and necessity, they revert to those kind of uh, practices. So, but they continue to be criminalized uh, or even seen as the, the, the evil people. And a lot of, you know, that poachers need to be killed or, and rather, and that these wild spaces need to continue to be protected. And, and that's, that's the real issue now. It's how do you reverse that? Uh, to actually reverse that trauma of separation and the fact that they needed to resort to these kind of uh, activities uh, is the real issue. And, and, it's, and it's, that's when some form of restitution needs to be, or reparations needs to be uh, carried out, ownership, co-management, benefit sharing, even equitable decision-making. And, and I think Francis Massey's work uh, on the border of, uh, on the Kruger, I think it's the edge of Kruger National Park, just south of Mozambique. Uh, even even the, the main people who are there in the ranger outfit, they, they're also ex-apartheid. So the colonial system is very much ingrained in even the security forces that are that are augmented in these spaces. So This this reminds me a lot of Andrea Brock's work. Uh, big shout out to her. She, she came on the podcast a few months ago, but I've just been rereading her work on the decarbonization divide. Um, where she looked at Congo, uh, the DRC and mining in the uh, things called the Katanga region uh, in the south, and and this really echoes what you're saying. Like it, it, I f I'm finding this more and more in, in different researchers' work um, that what you're saying is like this: the people are kind of pushed to those peripheries, like you said, and the same thing seems to happen through her research in Congo that people are pushed to mining out of uh, sort of necessity to mining cobalt and such. And it actually prevents them from diversifying their, their economy and, and kind of their outputs. And it pushes them all into this, like what's seen as this evil thing to, to from our perspective to destroy the land and mine for cobalt, but is really just the result of them having been pushed out of their own, economy let's say yeah and i think i think no i, I maybe it's because you have so many political ecologists on the show that we're all looking beyond <laughs> the, the the main issue no that that direct threat and looking at the power and the decision making and the history of a space and and how they have all helped create the current situation no and 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 yeah we need to we really need to do that for for conservation as well as as land rights and, and land rights is is the first step towards the solution. And I think this, this paper that we've just written, this report, discusses this, that, that if you look at the traditional, the lands traditionally owned and managed by indigenous peoples, local communities, and Afro-descendants, it's around about 50% of the Earth's terrestrial surface. But only 10% of that is legally owned. And even ownership, it's questionable. And, and the whole issue of rights are in themselves a Western construct as well, no? So now we are applying a Western construct of rights around the world 
and that's also flawed and, and rights are often created one uh, in a way that's less threatening to any existing system of power and two they're often granted so they can be taken away from you so so how do you then create a system of land rights and we stress this as well that we need to create culturally appropriate land rights that that don't end up in people being private that land being privatized or or, or individual titles that are being given and, and that then taken away because as opposed to a community land and collective inalienable, inalienable land rights that, that a community decides and manages collectively uh, as, a, as opposed to these kind of private land rights. So, so this would be a first step towards then focusing on this whole livelihood issue, no? Which would come afterwards and which is then uh, once that platform is secured, the land rights, you would then start building things for livelihood, benefit sharing, collective and equitable decision making. And conservation actors can come in should the community actually want them to or even invite them to do so. Uh, because we have to then understand that they are conserving their lands already. And, and, if they, and the threats to their land, the resources held above and below... Uh, that is the drive that's really pushing uh, fragmentations of ecosystems and other affluence is the biggest driver. Land, large-scale land acquisitions and, and affluence are the biggest drivers of, of um, land use change and environmental destruction. And that's the core issue that needs to be addressed. But through rights, you can create those little local solutions. So. Yeah, I, I, I want to dive into your, your article a little bit. Um, this was a well, article or, or report really... Um, it's called Rights-Based Conservation, the Path to Preserving Earth's Biological and Cultural Diversity. So this was published uh, recently, I think you told me, by the Rights and Resources Initiative. Monday, um, yeah. Monday, oh, right. Well, <laughs> congrats on that. Uh, Thank you. It's, it's a really well put, to, put together report. I really recommend everyone uh, goes and, and checks it out. We'll put it in the description. We'll put a link in the description to, to where you can see it. And um, the report, uh, in, in my understanding, really tackles... Um, the kind of the 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 shock between the conservation um, kind of lobby side of of the debate and the land rights um, side and and the report is has outlines like five kind of questions um, including things like um, how many people live within important biodiversity conservation areas uh, that could be affected by future conservative conservation, sorry, actions. Um, so why, what, how many people would be affected by these things? Uh, what's the distribution of those people according to income status of countries? Um, what are the costs and benefits of community rights-based conservation? And I thought the, a lot of the conclusions were really, really interesting. The, the not just the key findings, but also the recommendations that you had. I was wondering if you could maybe. I know it's a it's a big report to summarize, but if you could give uh, our listeners a little bit of a, a summary as to what they could get out of this report. <laughs> yeah. So, I think. I'll, the so we. What we always look at this whole especially when you get into anthropology or maybe, okay, I won't, I won't sidetrack <laughs> in global policy. Uh, we often think about all this space and decisions around these space and what space needs to be protected. And there's all these parameters and analysis, but we, we always, well, I'll just say they always forget that this space is a lived in space, that the natural world is, is also a, a human world. It's, it's been co-created by people. So we really wanted to add that human element, which has been done before. Um, Chris Sandbrook and um, others uh, at the University of Cambridge, they also did this to another um, with the same method as we did. And they found one billion people in, uh, I think it was called eco-regions. So we wanted to build up on this in, in, another, in other projections and, and say, look, this, is, this space is actually a lived space. It's the home of this many people. So all of these decision-making platforms, at least, they need to consider their rights. We also then uh, 
see where these people are. And of course, we found that the, the burden is predominantly in low and lower in middle income countries and even upper middle income countries. And that disproportionately, the populations of these countries also live in these spaces as well, which often, and other research has also said that these spaces, these communities are often also dependent on those natural resources as well. So any impact in removing them would be really devastating to their way of life. But also we co-opted a cost-effective discourse. You know, a lot of these crisis narratives and also these crisis solutions, these environmental solutions are always framed in, in the context of, of money. Um, and, and it also then is a bit of a flaw, no? because it's that financial valuation of things, which is also a Western construct. And it's also, it's, it's flawed in the essence that there are some relational values that are simply unmonetizable. And many conservationists have recognized this. So we play that game too, to bring up this uh, argument. And, but we know by design that by doing this, we're also, it's also flawed calculation. So we've taken up World Bank and um, African Development Bank and even Asian Development Bank um, estimates per household for resettlement. But, they, but even then, it's impossible to generalize those kind of analysis on a global scale because land has a different value, different kinds of fruit-bearing trees on each, each piece of property, the buildings, schools, uh, businesses, all of those also have a value, and we can't generalize that. So if anything, this preposterous sum of $5 trillion for everybody to resettle them is, is, a, is a gross underestimate. And we compare that to the... Um, price of actually recognizing their lands and, and build that um, on with the next finding and the next, which is also discussing uh, their own, like these indigenous peoples and local communities' own abilities and, and the, the data that supports their conservation efforts. So, so, so that's kind of how we try to bring it full circle, know that that recognizing the rights is not only a cost-effective strategy, but it's also a strategy that, <laughs> that will be better maintained and more equitable and just. You know, the conservation comes secondary. And we're also not saying that the space that we're analyzing is what needs to be protected. We're not advocating for 30% or 50%. We're advocating for land rights and the recognition of these communities and the need to include them in decision-making and anything going forward. And that, if anything, it is that union of communities to a space that make them the best people to decide how best to continue using and conserving that space. I mean, it sounds like a healthy fusion of conservation and human rights or like people's rights. It, it, I feel like um, too often, like what you're saying, it's uh, people have to put one above the other. Like, it, are mm. we caring for this community's rights or for nature's rights within that community. But, um, but I think, yeah, I think what you're saying is really, really important. And we definitely do not hear enough that you don't have to choose. You can, you can kind of have an integrated approach like that. Yeah. Well, that would be an indigenous way of actually viewing the world. No, as, mm -hmm. as one, as being connected. And that's maybe that separation from the environment, from nature, that, that the creation of that dualism is, if anything, the thing that continues to destroy or enable the destruction and continued destruction of, of, going, of the environment and of people, both. You know, environmental justice and social justice are the same thing to a certain degree when you, when, you view, when you view them as solutions and going forward, at least in most of many parts of the world. And I think it's also true for, for even in conventional research uh, or i mean at least in formulating rights at least in genocide there's this concept of barbarity and vandalism however if we look at the, the geneva the convention on genocide it's, it's about focuses particularly on the barbarity on the physical violence aspect and not necessarily on the vandalism and for a lot of communities who live in these spaces the destruction of environment actually for the entire for all of us to be honest the destruction of the environment is our inherent destruction as well so it's really interesting to see this, this other movement of ecocide being recognized as a crime against humanity that's also taking place now. Uh, that would be really interesting to see how that develops, how that unfolds, whether it gets even recognized, even though it has gotten to the draft stage of many 
policies at the intergovernmental level, it's never been fully uh, recognized in the final draft or the final, final copy notes. And that's also a situation of power. What would happen if the destruction of the environment was recognized as a crime against humanity? What does that do to business as usual? It would completely change everything. Yeah. Do you, do you think that um, when you brought up that five trillion figure, uh, by, was it the World Bank you said? Yeah. So yeah, it, multiple. So they have this thing called resettlement action plans. And right. uh, yeah. But I, I think that that is something I, I find more and more in uh like political ecology, but not on the side of the researchers that work in the, this kind of field, but more like on the side of, um, you know, more global kind of like government think tank sort of places um, is this sort of, they, they take this idea, like how much would it cost to do this? And they, they theorize it so much and they, they take it out of, out of reality so much to be able to put numbers on it that that thing that they're calculating doesn't doesn't really reflect reality anymore do you see what i mean no completely and i think we have to see those as tools and i think the only issue is when we when we give too much credit to the accuracy of that tool we have to be incredibly caveated uh with those kind of analysis this report its intention is for multiple audiences. So it's, it's, it, it, it's, it needs to be accessible and it also needs to be in multiple, in an easy, in, in a multiple forms of language with multiple arguments that actually make it accessible and even in a language that people understand as well. And money is one of those languages that some people understand quite yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. There is a really, really important graph at the end of the paper as well that I hope everyone will go and check out because I just can't stress how interesting it is uh it features uh, what i think seems like almost every country in the world uh and the proportion of the population that lives currently within protected uh areas that lives in wilderness areas and the proportion that would be living in uh conservation areas that are proposed if i if i understood it right and in some cases it is absolutely astonishing how much of an effect uh, these conservation tactics would have. I mean, the, the colors tell it all, really, for the graph. Um, what do you think, Thomas, is, is a... Have you talked to people who are in favor of these kind of wild targets without thinking of, conserv- of land rights and indigenous people? And have you been able to have discussions like this with people on the other side of the issue i, w- I would like to say yes but i, I can't really say yes there's uh, most people that i've spoken to are very conscious of the need to include but i've also spoken predominantly to to maybe particular people i've also spoken to i've heard conversations with others who who are talking about how conservationists can solve problems and and already that kind of discourse is flawed no uh who is anyone to to solve a problem for for someone else at a local level uh, without considering you know you just create more if if we if we come in with this idea that we can solve these issues in our own kind of siloed spaces and that's why again land rights and this kind of this, this suggestion it's the only way because you're creating not just one solution you're creating a multitude of many local solutions that can all adapt and react and respond to a place. So it's this kind of, this decision-making that takes place in a, in a fragmented space that excludes others is the issue. And, and I have met people who discuss and, 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 and go around creating these kind of solutions, of course, in those spaces. And, and they're the ones that can be most dangerous. However, for the graph itself, if you look at the graph, most the ones that are most impacted are of course the island nations uh, and that's because they have a higher concentration of endemic species which have been prioritized but the projections as well they're built on species on gap analyses and it's an incredible and also useful tool to identify which areas could be prioritized for conservation alliances with 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 communities on the ground Um, but it does speak volumes to see that proportionately 
a lot of most people in low and lower income countries, you know, more sometimes more than 40%, 50% of their population live in biodiversity. 70% of those lands are intact as well. So this whole concept of them being one without people, we have 1.87 billion people there. And two, that those people destroy these 1.87 people live in lands that are 70% intact. And there are other, of course, pressures on them. But that's the discourse that needs to be kind of countered. No, it has to be that discourse of people being destructive or, or that local communities are desperate and they'll do anything to survive and they'll destroy everything because, uh, you know, because when there's abundance, they'll take it all. And, and I've heard that as well. That discourse ha has come up that even in the time of COVID, people going back to their lands, that's a bad news because they'll destroy that biodiversity. And that's, that's, a, that's a fallacy that we really have to attack uh, because people manage and respect the lands that give them their livelihoods and their life. Yeah. And this, this brings us to kind of a, a secondary sort of topic, which is the exclusion of people from these uh, decision-making spaces, which is something that you've done some work on as well. And I think this graph is actually, and, and kind of conservation tactics that that you mentioned in this paper as um, are, are really examples of people being denied that decision-making space. Because like you said, if we, if we look at the graph, it's quite clear that um, what we consider to be more developed nations, like for example, the UK, uh, these sort of tactics would not really affect them that badly compared to the poor countries. Um, so in a way, I feel like, yeah, that shows that they are being left out of these conversations because no one in the Seychelles, for example, would have considered <laughs> to turn like 50% of the island to protected uh, area because it would affect 90% of the population, according to the graph. Um, yeah. And I wonder if you maybe then if we can talk as well about a second uh, paper that you've worked on, which is called Under the Cover of COVID, uh, New Laws in Asia Favor Business at the Cost of Indigenous Peoples and Local Communities Land and Territorial Rights. Yeah, this one. This one is not not my paper. It was a collective uh, endeavor by um, the Asia team at the Rights and Resources Initiative, the Tenure Coalition of Indonesia and the Asia Indigenous Peoples Pact. And, and this is, and I think this is actually one of the most, the scariest things is, is in this report. It's because it's, it's, it's important because COVID, we always had that, that, that thing. COVID is created by, you know, the merging of high density populated uh, areas of people and the destruction of environment and the fact that these zoonotic diseases are, are released into populations that make them and enable them to proliferate quite uh, around the world, no. So that destruction, those la large-scale land acquisitions, mining, all of these kind of products um, are the processes. Even you know, battery farming and high-intensity agriculture are, are the things that create and enable these viruses to to proliferate, mutate quickly into a host, other host populations, no. And in terms of preventing a future one. Well, we should have done everything we could to prevent this one, but to prevent future ones, drastic transformative change needs to take place. And what we see instead is that the recession that has been caused as a result of COVID, as a result of lockdowns, has, and even the lockdowns themselves have been, are being used by governments to pass legislation uh, that will actually detrimentally impact the environment and people and are passing them in a way that limits uh, the public participation of people, uh, limits critique, and also then is a hotbed for corruption, uh, for all this cronyism and elitism and to benefit, no? And instead, we're seeing that, you know, indigenous and local community lands are being targeted, the areas of bi high biodiversity importance are being targeted, that mining is being labeled as an essential service across the world that itself is being a vehicle for for moving viruses from urban spaces to remote areas that also impact indigenous peoples and and, and rather than actually any kind of change you know, as a global community we failed the Aichi uh, 
uh, targets, you know, these ones that were set in 2020, 2010 to, to address climate change and the destruction of biodiversity. We failed them all as a global community. And now with COVID, we're seeing that when, when it should be most obvious that something needs to change, we're seeing that instead mines and other forms of concessions are being granted 20-year clearances. And those clearances are often the needs to, to <laughs> some of those clearances are actually rights clearances. You know, in India, the Forest Rights Act is a clearance. Any mining uh, company needs to get clearance that that area is not you know, recognized or, or the traditional lands of anyone. And those are being, they're, they're having amnesty for all of these things for environmental impact assessments. So things, the next decade or so, even two decades are, are looking pretty grim if, if this doesn't change. And we've seen those trends taking place in the three countries we analyzed, uh, Philippines, I Indonesia, and India. Like and, and we're getting reports the, now that um, this document is out, others are seeing those trends too. So on, on the final uh, diagram, it shows that uh, there is a proposal for what what seems to be over 80 percent uh, which would put over 80 percent of the inhabitants of uh, Seychelles if I'm saying that correctly. Seychelles. Yeah. Seychelles in um, protected uh, areas um, and we discussed earlier how um, there doesn't have to necessarily be a, a conflict of interest between indigenous use of resources and conservation but I was wondering, in terms of economic development, it seems quite straightforward to me that any kind of protection of land or resources will um, be counteracting development of uh, a country's industry. So for the examples of uh, Seychelles, um, if over 80% of the, the land inhabited by people will be protected, would you agree that, that, that this would have an impact on the country's industrial mm -hmm. development? And if so, would do do you, do you therefore have some sort of process to judge what's an appropriate kind of effect? Uh, kind of, what what's what's an appropriate way to balance these two interests? Yeah. So the report's not saying that this area should be conserved. I think that's the first point: is that this area has just been flagged as as high biodiversity important areas. So, uh, important biodiversity conservation areas. So Seychelles has a lot of these and also because, you know, over 80% because it's an island state. But in terms of economic development, I think we have to critique what economic development is right now and its implications. No? And there are other people working on the and conservation or even tourism, for example, is, is, is a, an industry and a lucrative industry that's expected to grow in the next uh, in the next few years, decades even. So, so I would say that in terms of when we discuss the need to protect ecosystems and life and biodiversity on earth, uh, we would also have to critique you know, what economic development is and, and whether we need to change the way in which we're doing those kind of uh, processes, you know, how we're, we're even thinking about growth and, and and that, that, that goes beyond the scope of this report. Uh, so it's not necessarily, you know, I, I completely agree that, that yes, you know, if you're, if you're blocking out all of this space, what is the impact on a country? And there definitely is an impact. But in terms of economic development and prosperity, surely there is a different, an alternative process. You no, know, there are other people who discuss degrowth, for example, and even eco, different forms of doing ecotourism and different, you know, and Seychelles makes, I'm sure, a large amount of its money from tourism as well. It's just where does that money go? Uh, who's benefiting from that money? Those are the questions when it comes to economic growth, you know, whether everybody is still championing this whole fallacy of trickle-down economics, you no, know, or whether we can actually, through, say, uh, equitable processes built around land rights, economic development can still take place, but in a way that isn't concentrated at those who own the resorts, but also at those. And, and there are interesting things going around, you know, the convivial conservation argument also brings in this, this whole conservation basic income discourse out as well, that people inhabiting uh, biodiverse spaces uh, can be, you know, given a stipend as well for their role yeah. in continuing to conserve. So it, it's, it, 
it's maybe a critique more on how we're actually doing you know economic growth to begin with uh, it's, it becomes more of a complicated multi-layered issue that that needs you know where that has people thinking about it and 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 they'll be much better equipped to answer it than myself so, but yeah that, so yeah, it's but good yeah. to hear that i guess that there, there there aren't alternatives to at least consider absolutely there there's, there must be and there are uh, alternatives that that you know if you're going to block out 80% of a country's terrestrial area yeah. for conservation you know mm -hmm. it will have an impact that's a, that's another argument against it if anything you know um yeah, for sure. The island would probably just shut down in terms of uh, economic output. Well, if, if they can rely on tourism, but what, what happens yeah. then to the people in the other 20%? What happens to them? Who owns the who owns access or the benefits to that yeah. 80%? Is it the lodges? Is it the urban spaces that then become just, you know, they make, produce food for tourists? It, it, it's that it becomes a bit of a larger issue with more questions. Do you know if there are any groups, conservation groups uh, out there that are kind of on the front lines and, and maybe speaking to governments about this and kind of getting the right changes made? Uh, conservation groups in the traditional sense? I'm yeah, not aware. Yeah. I'm not aware, but I, I, there are a lot of organizations that and, and local community organizations, academics as well, researchers, uh, the IIED, uh, they're also doing great work. This whole po po people, not poachers, uh, are collating um, information and data. And, and I would say that those, even if they negotiate with governments via proxy through the data that they produce, and then other advocates are the ones who would also, so those who don't directly negotiate even with governments but produce supportive data and information are, are equal actors in that negotiation. And then Lots of other actors will, 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 will be the ones who actually begin negotiating. But, but the ones I'm accustomed to are, are land rights organizations and indigenous peoples and local community organizations. And, and they are negotiating for equitable processes in conservation and their recognition as well and rights and, and use and also are allied to other, other organizations, research organizations and academics who are, are producing that data. Uh, the data is a very useful tool and it speaks volumes and it's then collating that data and creating it into a piece to, to be leveraged at the government level. And, but that leveraging is taking place, but I'm, I'm not so sure about conservation organizations, you know, like WWF, they do work a lot with governments, but, and also for environmental policy, but a lot of the environmental policy that they make favors WWF and even the relocation kind of, uh, policies that they do favor the conservation actors as opposed to the communities themselves so yeah yeah and just for everyone to have a bit of an idea like data wise um the report that we're talking about highlights the uh, between 1.65 to 1.87 billion uh people live in important biodiversity conservation areas uh, which is what well, by now we're halfway through 7 billion so about right so that's nearly a quarter of people that live in these areas around the world um and over half of them are in low and middle income countries so it it really highlights that the burden uh, of this conservation idea falls on on rural poor living when really people in high income countries form just about 9% of that population in uh, important biodiversity conservation areas and i'm i'm gonna guess that out of that nine percent it's probably the lower kind of classes or poorer classes of those countries that are richer i mean same that we saw with with georgia yordikescu where where um the people who live in these conservation areas even in european countries which are kind of global north countries they are still the poorer people of those countries yeah, and I guess we're then we're measuring poverty on a on a financial scale as well. And I know yeah. a lot of indigenous people who would say that they're very rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. The forest gives them everything that they want or could ever want, uh, for example. Um, but yeah, uh, in economic terms, uh, the communities in these spaces are often are often from the poorer ends of any nation state. No, but that's also because. You know, who are the richer ones as well? That's probably the other question. Are usually mm -hmm. astronomically richer and make their business you know, through 
through you know financing or more urban kinds of uh, of, of occupation. No? So in the global north, um, a lot of this you know the taiga uh, in you know Russia and also in the north of Canada. These are big spaces. Uh, there's they're just very hostile spaces as well, underpopulated. Um, so in terms of area, we see that you know Canada, Russia, Australia, uh, even Brazil, they have a large swaths of their land uh, as important biodiversity conservation area. But yeah, I, I would say that most people living in these spaces have a re relationship with that space uh, that, that is completely different to those that in urban space, absolutely. And they're more dependent on it. And for that matter, it's more important to, to, to consider those kind of processes. Yeah. Do, do you think that there is a little bit of a worry to maybe kind of, what's the word, evangelize um, indigenous peoples or to kind of present them as a monolith of goodness in terms of, of uh, conservation? Is there, is there not, I, I guess this goes back a little bit to Jamie's uh, question earlier, but I feel like when we say indigenous people, we, we kind of make this broad brush stroke of, of all indigenous people on, on the planet. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm also kind of questioning the, the intent of, of some peoples to, not the intent, no, should, sorry, more. Always sorry, question the intent of people. Yeah. <laughs> not really the intent. I mean more the, that these indigenous peoples would not follow the same path that let's say like European countries have in the terms of development or, or um, consumerism. But I guess, you know, at the end of the day, every culture, every peoples is, should be free to develop. However uh, they develop if they don't harm anyone, but are we not also making the mistake of kind of making a monolith of indigenous people and to put them on the pedestal as, as a good example of living? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, this, there is, the, there is some literature on this, this ecological native, you know, that people have produced this kind of idea of, of others being, being, it's, 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 it's a very good question because a lot of indigenous peoples and local communities also, they don't want to be the saviors of the world. And we are not putting, that discourse assists in the recognition of their rights. And a lot of, that's why this whole, the issue of agency and self-determination is so important. We don't put forward that, we, the multitude of solutions of rights recognition enables, enables people to decide what they want to do. And of course, in every group of, or culture and society, you know, people are people and there are always going to be people who want to do different things or who want to live in a nice house and a nice car. And no one's, you know, no one, that's, that's a community dynamic that no one, at least I'm not imposing any kind of <laughs> rule on them. Uh, the issue is that that decision needs to be, needs to be a choice. Uh, and the indigenous people and local communities are advocating for their rights. That's, 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 their, that's, that's what they're doing. They're advocating for their rights, for their agency, for their self-determination. And this report supports that argument in, a, in terms of data. Um, but it doesn't, and it, and it shows evidence to support what they're saying that they can steward and they do steward those lands. The decision to do so, that's not us uh, controlling that or even dictating it. It's not up to anyone to, 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 to do that. You know, everybody as a collective humanity has to alter our own way of doing things and consuming and being uh, to insight change. Uh, just so it's, it's, it's not so much this, uh, it's recognizing rights as a solution because those who want to and do live in, un in a different way and a different relationship with the earth have that capability. And when their rights are not precarious, they can actually, they can actually invest in space as well. And that's what the argument is. And, and within those community dynamics, everybody can do, uh, there's always going to be people who want to do different things. And, and, and that's, up for the, that's for the community to, to, 
to sort out or to to have their own system that that addresses that no and and have those kind of if, if an indigenous person or local community wants to have an education that that's not a, it's not a debate really that they are being prevented from doing that so but yes there is and i understand your question and there is this kind of tendency to 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 make you know to put a burden on others to save the world and 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 it really it's just it, trusting in people to do the right thing is what will save the world and giving them their agency and self-determination to do so uh, is what the most important thing is yeah so what can we do as as uh, <laughs> as, as you know as interested individuals who want to better the world and who want to make conservation right what would you suggest for all of our listeners out there who maybe don't aren't researchers who you know maybe work in in one field or another unrelated but who still want to make a difference Oof. Um, i'm not asking you as a as a researcher I'm asking <laughs> as a person, person? who's in this field um what do you think how could they help properly i think i think always creating an inclusive space you know, at every decision making, at every, you know, all the discussions need to be inclusive, no? And if everybody can use their privilege uh, to open spaces that have historically and continued to exclude, uh, that's in itself something we can all do, no? We can, we can use our privilege as tools to, 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 to break the spaces that we predominantly occupy and allow access and promote access of others who have been historically marginalized. You know? and, and, and all our work can, can go in that kind of way. Uh, and I think that's, that's an important, maybe that's, that's a, a simple one, but aside from habits and choice and way of doing things, uh, the things we all hear, uh, I would say actively trying to break those spaces is probably something we can all contribute to. So before we end things, I, kind of forgot to do this at the beginning my bad but we'll do it now we usually have our animal sound game uh to play it's more it's less of a game to see if you can find the animals uh whose call uh you'll hear and it's more of a way to see if jamie can beat uh our guests yeah i've never lost Yes, he has never lost so far. We won't say the score so far, but he's never lost. So I'm just going to ask you to go into the Zoom group chat and click on the mystery sound uh, that you filed that you can see and to listen to it uh, a couple of times. So you get a couple of, of listens and then Thomas, you will have the first guess. Then Jamie will have a guess if you're not successful. I will give a hint after every two guesses. And if you still can't get it after a few guesses, um, it'll get easier and easier until hopefully one of you puts me out of my misery of being a game host. If I ever if I ever lose, I'm going to leave the podcast. Oh, oh God. no. Don't, don't, don't Please, win. Kind of Please win. Please <laughs> win. <laughs> I want him out. So we've agreed if Thomas wins, he will be taking my place on the podcast. <laughs> oh, no. Do I have to guess the species? Um, not the exact species, but the general animal, um, I think, will be it. Um, we can actually hear it through the thing. That's weird. I didn't think it would it would happen. But it's a def- I think it's a dolphin. A dolphin. Ooh. Close. It's a whale. One, one guess at a time. One guess at a time. <laughs> there you well, go. He, that's he, okay, that's well, why he, he wins because he goes second. <laughs> well, Jamie. Well, it was, was it? I'm not going to. No, he can have whale though. Was it whale? No. No. Okay. It's slightly Dolphin, specific. Dolphin's a good track though. I was actually, I th- actually thought it was like a small monkey for a while, like a, <laughs> a, a, a tiny monkey. But. Ah, a dolphin, not a dolphin. Um, and you said close. I, I, it's it's neither a dolphin. The, what I'm looking for is neither a dolphin or a whale, but it's quite close. It's a bit more specific Orca. than that. Oh, my God. God damn it. He got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. got it. 
damn it. It's an orca. It's a killer whale, uh, which is actually a dolphin. whale. It is actually a form of dolphin. So I'm going to give it to Thomas. Uh, oh. which... <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say it's an ambiguous and loss. It's an ambiguous it's draw. A, it's a draw. It's a draw. It's a draw. Yeah, so... I you accept, but at least you, you can still stay <laughs> in your position. Then. It's in. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll just say we'll we'll invite Thomas uh, next year to see if he's got any more papers out and stuff, and then he can play again. And I'll put an even more specific uh, sea mammal in there. The f- okay. the first crack in my my two win quiz throne has appeared. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I think it's time to wrap it up, but big, big, big thank you to Thomas Wardell oh, for coming so on the show. Um, and a big shout out to Rights and Resources Initiative, to the um, to the Asia uh, Indigenous Peoples uh, Pact. Yes, did I remember it right? Yes. And to uh, to all of the other orgs out there that not only take care of conservation, but also of people and their right to live on their lands and to to live independently and uh, without our paternalist uh, overlords telling them what to do. So yeah, all right. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank so you. much for having me. It's been great, and I, I've, I've been following you for a while, so I'm happy to. Oh, happy cheers, to man. You, you write me sporadically last week. That was lovely.